My Lord and my God, I firmly believe that you are here, that you see me, that you hear me. I adore you with profound reverence. I ask you for pardon of my sins and grace to make this time of prayer fruitful. My Mother Immaculate, Saint Joseph, my Father and Lord, my guardian angel, intercede for me. As a child, I remember three processions through my hometown. One was for St. Patrick's Day, a day on which, in addition to honouring our patron saint, the national apostle who almost single-handedly Christianised Ireland, people celebrated also their Irishness, marching through the town decked out in their scouting uniforms or football club strip, or as part of a pipe band, with a bit of shamrock thrown in for good measure. A second procession was a local beauty pageant, or personality contest if you like, in which young women from all over the world but of Irish origin would display their distinctively Irish talent, be it dancing, singing, or simply their captivating charm and good looks, in order to win the coveted prize. Part of the festival was a procession of the Rose contestants through the town on floats. You were lucky if your dad worked in the main street of the town because you might have a special view of the procession as the Roses came in on the Friday night. The third procession was quite different. The other two took place in spring and autumn, but the Corpus Christi procession used to take place in early summer. And significantly, we weren't celebrating ourselves or our Irishness, but rather something much more universal, namely Christ's real presence in the Blessed Eucharist. Girls who had recently received their First Communion, clothed in white dresses, lined up with baskets full of flower petals. There might have been cherry blossoms, there could have been rose petals, anything that would fill your basket and add colour. And they waited for the priest to appear bearing the monstrance. As soon as he did appear, they cast their petals before the Blessed Sacrament as the priest passed them by. There were altar servers, members of the civil defence, of the army, of the police, of any number of pious associations, the Legion of Mary, I'm sure, St. Joseph's Young Priest Society. Loudspeakers attached to lampposts relayed the sound of hymns being sung in St. John the Baptist's church, the parish church where I had been baptised as an infant, as well as the rosary and other prayers that were recited as we all made our way, the majority of us with our families. Papal flags and images of the Sacred Heart were hung from windows as we passed through the streets praying and singing and making our way through places my mother would not have allowed me to walk through by day, never mind by night. Finally, we came to an altar set up, typically in a residential housing estate where we had benediction. 
I don't remember what happened after that. The route was probably a loop that wound back to the church through the convent school next door to it, but I was hungry by then and keen to get home for dinner. As I said, we weren't celebrating ourselves. We weren't celebrating our national consciousness or patriotism, but rather something much more universal, namely Christ's real presence in the Blessed Eucharist. Think of the opening words of the third Eucharistic prayer. You never cease to gather a people to yourself so that from the rising of the sun to its setting, a pure sacrifice may be offered to your name. This is a relatively new translation from the previous missal, which used to say from east to west. Both phrases try to communicate the idea that a vast gathering of people desires to offer praise and honour to God. But from the rising of the sun to its setting follows exactly the words of Psalm 113 and also captures the whole breadth of time from sunrise to sunset, as well as that of space from east to west. Last week, we celebrated the solemnity of the Most Blessed Trinity, a great mystery, the primordial mystery, as it were, because the story of God's love for mankind has its origin in the communion of love that is the Blessed Trinity. In adoring the Trinity, we acknowledge God's supreme sovereignty. We praise him for his glory, and we honour Father, Son and Holy Spirit in their distinction as persons, and at the same time, paradoxically, in their unity, in their shared divine essence. This communion of love is not introverted, so to speak. No, it overflows in creation, in the Incarnation, the Word made flesh, and in Pentecost, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. As St. Paul puts it, writing to the Romans, the love of God has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, which has been given to us. God's love overflows, too, in the Holy Eucharist. It is a great mystery, manum mysterium, how God chose to recreate us, to redeem us, and then to remain present among us in the consecrated host. About two years ago, some parents I know became concerned about how little religious instruction their children were getting at school. Face-to-face -face classes had been suspended during public health restrictions, and the priority of the school was to teach as much maths and English as possible. Harking back to the, the days of the three R's, reading, writing, and arithmetic. Well, the consequence is that other subjects, such as Christian doctrine, were being neglected. The parents decided to try to catechize their children themselves. Several were being prepared for their first communion. Young children are very curious. During the course of their instruction by their parents, lots of questions arose various of which were passed on to me 
to try to answer in plain language. For example, how does the body of Christ become a host on the pattern? When Jesus said to his friends that he had to give them his body to eat, did he cut off one of his feet or something like that? What did he mean? Why do we have to eat him? Out of the mouth of babes. Yet it's not just children who are curious about Catholic doctrine and the Eucharist. Recently on a trip to walk a part of the Camino de Santiago in Spain, a non-Catholic member of our group who attended Mass with us daily and wanted to know more about the Catholic Church asked me over coffee, why do people wait in the church after Mass? Some of the lads were doing their thanksgiving after having received Holy Communion. And later on, on another occasion, he asked, when the priest raises his hands during the Mass, and he gestured with his hands raised in the air, imitating the action of the priest at the elevation of the consecrated host, when the priest raises his hands like this during Mass, what's happening? Lex orandi, lex credendi. How we pray is how we believe. Mystagogy. Teaching through the mysteries. The celebration of the liturgy is itself a pedagogy, an instruction in the faith. There's so much you can learn from a liturgy that is well conducted. Yet this faith has very solid biblical foundations also. In a very early text from the first century, St. Paul writes in his first letter to the Corinthians, I received from the Lord what I also handed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was handed over, took bread, and after he had given thanks, broke it and said, this is my body that is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the death of the Lord until he comes. This is my body that is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And also the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the death of the Lord until he comes. St. John, writing, it seems, later that same century, recounts in chapter 6 of his Gospel, Jesus' bread of life discourse. The dialogue took place in the synagogue at Capernaum. The Jews asked Jesus, what sign he could perform so that they might believe in him. He had been shaping up to be some kind of Messiah figure, 
in their view, and they were a bit sceptical. They were testing him, so they reminded him that our ancestors ate manna in the desert. They ate manna in the wilderness. Could Jesus top that? Then Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I tell you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They were all of a sudden very excited. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. At this point, the Jews understood him to be speaking not literally, but metaphorically, figuratively. They must have been surprised when Jesus responded first by repeating what he said, and then summarizing, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread which I shall give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? His listeners were stupefied because now they understood Jesus literally and correctly. He again repeated his words, but with even greater emphasis, and introduced the statement about drinking his blood. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. No room for doubt there. Our Lord's listeners understood him perfectly well. They no longer thought he was speaking metaphorically or figuratively. In John chapter 6, verse 60, we read, Many of his disciples, when they heard it, said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? It is here, in the rejection of the Eucharist, that Judas fell away. And John goes on to say, After this, many of his disciples drew back and no longer went about with him. In the words of one observer, This is the only record we have of any of Christ's followers forsaking him for purely doctrinal reasons. If they erred in taking a metaphor in a literal sense, why didn't he call them back and straighten things out? Both the Jews, who were suspicious of him, and his disciples, who had accepted everything up to this point, would have remained with him had he said he was speaking only symbolically. But he did not correct these protesters. Twelve times he said he was the bread that came down from heaven. Four times he said they would have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. John chapter 6 was an extended promise of what would be instituted at the Last Supper. And it was a promise that could not be more explicit.
Indeed, the Catechism of the Catholic Church explains how Christ becomes present sacramentally at Mass. Referring to a part of the Eucharistic prayer known as the Epiclesis, a Greek word meaning invocation upon, which is the intercession in which the priest begs the Father to send the Holy Spirit, the Sanctifier, so that the offerings may become the body and blood of Christ, and that the faithful, by receiving them, may themselves become a living offering to God. So you have a, a double transformation. The bread and the wine become the body and blood of Christ, and those who receive these consecrated species are themselves transformed into a living offering to God. It's remarkable. It's a real challenge to our faith because no empirical science could teach us this. It is a revealed truth. It is certainly a mystery. But nonetheless, more real, more true for all of that. And not something that cannot be grasped, even though it seems complex. I'm reminded of some years ago when I was chaplain to a school, I was talking to some secondary school boys, and we were discussing the Mass and parts of the Mass. And I was saying, well, you know, what is the Mass? Tell me in your own words. And we went through the introductory rites. We talked about the Liturgy of the Word. And then the Liturgy of the Eucharist. And, well, tell us about that. The, what is the, the center point? What is the climax of the Mass? Could you describe it in a word? And I was hoping they might use a particular word. I was thinking of consecration. But I was gobsmacked when one of the boys, I suppose he was 12, 13, said transubstantiation. Transubstantiation. Wow, that's got to be a six-syllable word. And there he was pronouncing it very clearly. I said, where did you come across that word? He said, oh, I learnt it while preparing for confirmation with my dad. Well, look at that. A very accurate term, a very precise term, a very theological term, and a boy barely into his teens quoting it back at me because his father had taken time to explain or go through the explanatory materials for the Sacrament of Confirmation with him, which included an explanation of the Mass. And really, this is something really important. Catechesis. Parents as the first educators educating their children in the faith. I understand that in Poland, the way the parishes approach catechesis is that they train the parents and the parents prepare the children then for the sacraments, be it First Communion or Confirmation. 
And really, logically, that's how it should be. In any case, transubstantiation. This is what the boy had said, and he was right. Because in the institution narrative, as the Catechism teaches, the power of the words and the action of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit makes sacramentally present under the species of bread and wine Christ's body and blood, his sacrifice offered on the cross once for all. So the outward appearance of bread remains, but the substance of the bread is transformed into the substance of Christ's body. The outward appearance of wine remains, but the substance of the wine is replaced by the substance of Christ's blood. Now, of course, Christ's body and blood can't be separated. Christ is united. And so if you receive under one species, you receive the whole body and blood of Christ. But that's a discussion for another day. For it is by the conversion of the bread and wine into Christ's body and blood that Christ becomes present in this sacrament, the Catechism continues. The Church Fathers strongly affirmed the faith of the Church in the efficacy of the word of Christ and of the action of the Holy Spirit to bring about this conversion. Thus, St. John Chrysostom declares, It is not man that causes the things offered to become the body and blood of Christ, but he who was crucified for us, Christ himself. The priest, in the role of Christ, pronounces these words, but their power and grace are God's. This is my body, he says. This word transforms the things offered. And so, in that moment, the priest acts in persona Christi, in the person of Christ, capitis corporis Christi, mystici, the head of of the mystical body of Christ. The priest lends his tongue to Jesus as Jesus transforms the bread and wine into his body and blood. And so this is something we should approach with great reverence, great piety, great humility, and also with a desire to purify ourselves. That beautiful formula for spiritual communion which Saint Josemaria learned as he was preparing as a child for his first communion can help you and me also. I wish Lord to receive you with the purity, humility and devotion with which your most holy mother received you with the spirit and fervor of the saints purity, humility, and devotion, and imitating Our Lady. How must Our Lady have prepared to receive our Lord in Holy Communion? She prepared really well to receive him into her womb when he was conceived in her womb. She was praying when the angel, the angel Gabriel appeared to her. But after Christ's passion, death, and resurrection, his ascension into heaven, his sending the Holy Spirit down upon the apostles to move them to in turn 
celebrate the Mass. Make Christ's body and blood present in an unbloody manner again on the altar. And then to distribute communion. Well, St. John the Apostle surely must have given communion to Our Lady. And how well, how reverently, how devotedly, how lovingly she would have prepared for that moment and received our Lord, his body and his blood, sacramentally from St. John. I remember a friend of my mum's who used to work in a boot factory. I think she had some kind of supervisory role. So she was a woman who was used to being side by side with lots of other people who were immersed in the world. So she she wasn't born yesterday, as they say. She didn't come down in the last shower. She knew how to distinguish between what's important and what isn't. And she could survive for herself, defend herself. But she also had great piety. My mum used to have great conversations with her, and as a child I overheard a number of them. But I do remember various occasions, well, they might be talking about clothes, they might be talking about the way certain women dress in public, they might be talking about sport, tennis, my mother was keen on tennis. They could be talking about any number of things, food. But they was also talking in a very natural way about their faith and about where they might have gone to Mass and how they might have got stuck in traffic and how perhaps in a particular moment after having a cup of tea or coffee, well, they found themselves a little bit close, tight on time. And so as they were approaching for communion, well, a certain amount of compunction overcame them well, my mum used to be optimistic and tend to give herself the benefit of the doubt, and us too sometimes, when we'd be going with her. And we're pretty, I'm pretty sure we cover the hour fasting, but my mum's friend, she, she didn't leave any margin for error. If she felt that she hadn't been a full hour fasting from food and drink, apart from water, before receiving Holy Communion, she wouldn't receive Holy Communion. And this was very instructive for me. I suppose I thought about it more later on and realized how, what a wonderful refinement this lady had towards our Lord, how well she prepared to receive him in Holy Communion. It can help us to think back to our childhood sometimes because, well, there are things one grasps as a child that escape us when we become a little bit more complex and rely excessively on reason, perhaps, and fail to trust more in God and in his goodness to us. We need to rediscover this childlike piety of children who have been prepared well to receive 
their first communion. We have to approach Holy Communion, even though it might be the thousandth time or the ten thousandth time. You know, we've received our Lord so many times at Mass. Well, each time has got to be as if it's the first time, as if I've never received you before, Lord. I want to savor this moment of personal, intimate communion with you. After all, I'm going to receive your body, your blood, your soul, your divinity. This is not a moment to get distracted. This is a moment to savor. And so we ask our Blessed Lady. I recall words from a prayer book that was recently put back in my hands, and which has this beautiful prayer to Our Lady, O most sacred, most serene and glorious Virgin Mary, who was found worthy to carry in your most holy womb the creator of all creatures, whose precious body and blood I, an unworthy sinner, have presumed to receive, behold, I humbly implore your mercy, that you may intercede for me with him, that whatsoever I have done unworthily, ignorantly or negligently, accidentally or irreverently, in the reception of this most holy sacrament, the same Lord Jesus, your Son, who with the Father and the Holy Spirit lives and reigns forever, may forgive through your intercession. Well, with those words, let us conclude our meditation. I give you thanks, my God, for the good resolutions, affections, and inspirations that you have communicated to me in this meditation. I ask you for help to put them into effect. My Mother Immaculate, Saint Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me.